Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. This is the first of two talks by Adrian Martin on the life of T.E. Lawrence. In this talk, he tells us about T.E. Lawrence's childhood and his life up to the end of the First World War. I have never been able to escape T.E. Lawrence. I may call him Ned or T.E.L., I was born in Felixstowe, where Lawrence served shortly at the RAF Marine Aircraft Experimental Establishment. On my grandmother's bookshelf was a 1935 edition of The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, presented to my grandfather as a present on retiring as treasurer of the Sandbatch Badminton Club. On my parents' bookshelf was The Arab Revolt by Robert Graves, a form prize for mathematics awarded to my father. On holiday, we drove past Clouds Hill in Dorset, long before the National Trust owned it, and past the spot where Lawrence's fatal crash occurred. He became a childhood hero. But this is not intended to be a one-sided boy's own paper tale of daring do. I want to put in some analysis, balance and objectivity, and that along the way, you will see why this complex man's life is so fascinating. The enigmas, the contradictions are what I think interests people when you get to know a little bit about him. Notwithstanding the matinee idol image, I believe he is worthy of study and a romantic tale. I think during a COVID, you ladies of Farnham need a bit of romance on a Monday morning. This has been a difficult talk to prepare. Normally when I do something, I start with a skeleton and add flesh. And in this case, I've been removing flesh, trying to expose the skeleton. This is not the military history group, but in order to show the talent of the torment, I have to spend time, particularly today, on the Arabs' revolt and TEL's part in it, which incidentally he described as a sideshow of a sideshow. It is far from comprehensive. There are some very good books about, particularly Neil Faulkner's book, which go into the whole of the war, because Lawrence's part was very important, but it was a small part, really, and there was a lot going on with other troops. One of my objectives, as as well as being true to my title, I hope to show Lawrence's unusual personal circumstances, his character, and how the personal circumstance explain that character. To look at what drove this complex man, to place the Arab revolt in its geopolitical context then and today, to examine how important Lawrence was to the Arab revolt, and to consider the hype and how much did he contribute to it. And then in the second part, I should be looking at his other talents. Let's go and look, first of all, at his early days. 
Thomas Edward Lawrence was born in Tramadoc, North Wales in 1888 to Thomas Lawrence and Sarah Lawrence. They were a seemingly respectable upper-middle-class Victorian family of independent means. Ned was their second son. Three more were to follow. In 1891, the family moved. Their fifth relocation to Dinard, where there was a sizable English presence. When they left France not long afterwards for the New Forest, T.L. was bilingual and had formed a dislike of the French, which was never to leave him. The problem of the boys' education brought about a final move to Oxford, where there was a grammar school and it was thus possible to save boarding school fees. In 1898, when T.L. was 10 years old, he overheard his parents talking to the family solicitor. What he learned was to have a profound effect on how he lived his life. His parents were not, in fact, married. His father was Thomas Robert Ty Chapman, later to become a baronet. His father's family were distantly related to Sir Walter Raleigh. His father was, in fact, originally married to another member of the Anglo-Irish aristocracy, and they had four daughters. And into this household had come a young Scottish governess, Sarah Juna, herself illegitimate. Her mother was an alcoholic with no known grave. She never knew her father. Sarah Juna tended not only for the educational needs of the four girls, but for certain other needs of her employer. Pregnant, she resigned, moved to Dublin and lived above a shop where Ned's elder brother was born. Eventually this was discovered and Mr. Chapman had to make a decision, give up Sarah or leave his wife. He chose the latter. Irish society was shocked. Mrs. Chapman, a devout Christian who delighted in secretly de delivering evangelicals to her Catholic neighbours at night, refused a divorce. His life now made some sense. The frequent moves, the lack of talk or of physical evidence of family members, and a certain reclusive attitude to friends. He told nobody, didn't tell his brothers anybody at all. His brothers were not to know for years. In those days, such a situation would have been truly shocking. Discovery would have meant leaving the dreamy spas of Oxford. The next section is reaction to the shock and a stripped upbringing. I imagine most of you have seen the spectacular, but not wholly accurate film Lawrence of Arabia. After seeing the film, Noel Coward, who met Lawrence, said, that if Peter O'Toole had been any better looking, it would have been called Florence of Arabia. In the film, just after taking Aqaba, Lawrence rides across the Sinai Desert and reaches the Suez Canal. He shouts across the canal to hail a passing motorcyclist. The soldier's reply is, who are you? That question was to plague Lawrence all his life. Was he base, illegitimate through his mother's background, aristocratic through his father's, upper middle class, the life the family appeared to leave, or simply 
middle class, or even worse. The fear of discovery haunted his parents. Because of her willingness to destroy a marriage, Sarah was obsessed with guilt about her illicit love affair and illegitimate children. An evangelical Christian, she served up a daily diet of morning prayers, Bible readings and church attendance. Part of the reason they went to Oxford was that Canon Christopher, whom they'd come across before, an evangelical clergyman, was at St. Allgate's. She was a classic example and believed that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. She believed in the five R's, ruin, redemption, regeneration, righteousness, and responsibility. A strict mother, she administered corporal punishment to the boys, particularly to Ned, her most rebellious child. The idea was to beat them until they begged her to stop. Ned did not beg her, and so she carried on, whilst he suffered or maybe enjoyed the pain. We shall come back to sadomasochism. Did the mother want her children to atone for her sins? T.L. craved his mother's love, yet resented her deceitfulness, hypocrisy and brutality. He described their relationship as a standing civil war. She conceded later she was partly to blame for his nervousness. Neil Faulkner, who wrote an excellent book on Lawrence of Arabia's war, said Lawrence's tragedy was to be vulnerable, conscious-ridden and too clear-sighted. It's a very, very strange relationship. There is some story, and like many of these stories, one doesn't know it was true, that as a punishment, she decided it was a good idea for him to be circumcised at the age of nine. That seems rather a cruel cut, but uh, it may just be one of the many apocryphal stories regarding this man. The father wrote to the boys to be opened after the parents' death. You can imagine or try to imagine how your mother and I have suffered all these years, not knowing what day we might be recognized by someone and our sad history published far and wide. I can say nothing more, except there was never a truer saying that the ways of transgressors are hard. Take warning from the terrible anxieties and sad thoughts endured by both your mother and me for now over 30 years. I know not what God will say to me. Your mother is not the least to be blamed, but I must say distinctly that there is no happiness in life except you abide in him through Christ, and I hope you all will. The mother went off to become a missionary in China with one of the boys. So it was a very strict evangelical upbringing. His comment about your mother is not the least to be blamed. Well, I think she did play some part in what happened. Perhaps she could have said no. But uh, anyway, the, this discovery about his illegitimacy happened after Ned has joined his older brother at Oxford High School in the autumn of 1896. There, he scorned sport, found academic work easily, was popular, a practical joker and regarded as an eccentric. He was perhaps too much of a loose cannon to impress his teacher, very much followed his own agenda. And I think this is perhaps a theme in his life. He concentrated on what he enjoyed. 
Having broken his leg, he was only five foot five inches tall, much shorter than his brothers. He got interested in architecture and he began going around Oxford selling architectural finds to the Ashmolean Museum. Oxford about that time was going through a great stage of development and DL had an arrangement with builders that if they dug up anything, they'd give it to him and probably he'd then sell it to the Ashmolean. He got engaged in brass running and became a keen photographer and cyclist. His father was a very keen cyclist and a, an early photographer. Gradually, he began to go on longer and longer cycle rides, visiting lots of churches. Returning to the shock of his family situation, he looked for something nobler to bury the secret. He became obsessed with King Arthur and the Crusades and the chivalric way of life. Richard I became a hero. One of the three books he carried with him in the Arab Revolt was Thomas Mallory's Le Mort d'Arthur, the best known account of the Arthurian legend in English. The other two incidentally were Aristophanes and the Oxford Book of English verse. We get some idea of the nature of the man. Shy, insecure, and with a lack of self-worth because of the circumstances he was in, he began to imagine himself as a latter-day Arthur or Richard I. Was he beginning to imagine himself a modern-day crusader? If so, where was the crusade to be? He chose the medieval past as he was aware of his descent from landed gentry and through his father was imbued with many of its habits and values. To flee his dark secret, he found refuge in the romantic myths of the feudal past. It's worth mentioning that Victorian England had revised interest in medieval England. We are in the age of William Morris and the pre-Raphaelites. Richard Ingrams talks about how the English loved to dust off their history and recreate their past. Now, somewhat randomly, I want to share with you something Lawrence wrote. It has been described as his epitaph, but it also explains his life. All men dream, but not equally. Those who dream by night in the dusty recesses of their minds wake in the day to find that it was vanity. But the dreamers of the day are dangerous men, for they may act their dreams with open eyes to make it possible. This I did. And that indeed is the case. He was a dreamer, and I believe he sought to cast off his illegitimacy and achieve something special. It's arguable that at an early age, he set out to be a hero. He stated at one stage that he wanted to be a general and knighted before he was 30. Ironically, he could possibly have achieved this. Ultimately, he failed to realize his dream when politics intervened and his failure to deliver the Arabs an independent state, as he had promised, turned his dream into a personal nightmare, the torment. Ned entered Jesus College in 1907, being warded an exhibition it was for people born in Wales, and of course he'd been born in Tramadoc. He read history specializing in the medieval period. 
he found the new freedom of university life share heaven. Once again, he cultivated an eccentric image, challenging himself by going without food or sleep for days. He lived mostly at home in a bungalow his parents had built in the house in Polstead Road, I think mainly because Lawrence was possibly so difficult to deal with his mother. It was almost better for both of them if he was living alone in the bungalow. He decided he was going to walk around Syria and Jordan. In connection with his thesis, a distance of about 1,100 miles. Now, he consulted various people who knew the Middle East, and they said, well, that's absolutely ridiculous. Nobody goes and does that in summer walking. When he said, I do. And he visited all these crusader castles, and he returned a changed man. He had fallen under the spell of Arabia. The point about his thesis was an interesting one. The perceived view was that Crusader castles were influenced by the architecture of European castles. Lawrence turned this completely on its head, proved that European castles had been influenced by the Crusader castles, and who was awarded first-class honours in modern history. Whilst at Oxford, he was also busy studying military history and tactics. Through his contacts at the Ashmolean Museum, David Hogarth, the keeper, secured Ned a senior demyship at Magdalen College for five years, enabling him to join the planned British Museum excavations at Carchemish on the banks of the Euphrates. On the far side of the river, German engineers were building a bridge, part of the 800-mile-long Hejaz railway from Damascus to Medina. This railway was intended eventually to be extended to enable pilgrims to reach Mecca. Apparently, all the Arab ladies who ran bed and breakfast establishments were extremely cross about the railway because all the pilgrims, instead of coming on foot, went on the trains and they lost all their business. T.E.L. was to be deputy director, responsible for photography, cataloguing and supervising the native workforce. As the war approached, he was his age, an exceptionally experienced and accomplished medievalist, a field archaeologist, and well-traveled, and a linguist with, with command of Greek, Latin, French, Turkish, and Arabic. It is said that he spoke 11 languages, not to mention various dialects. His knowledge of Arabic was not as good as that of Gertrude Bell, however a somewhat similar person. But perhaps the, the greatest benefit of Karkamish was his growing understanding of the Arabs and how to motivate them. At one stage, the Germans had some major sort of industrial relation problems on the bridge, and they called in Lawrence to sort it out, which he duly did. His admiration for the Bedouin and their way of life was growing. Was he beginning to commit that cardinal sin in imperial times, going native? At Karkamish, he met Dahum, an intelligent, handsome Bedouin boy. More of him later when we look at T.E. Lawrence and sex. As the storm clouds gathered in Europe, the significance of the Suez Canal and the need to protect it became paramount. 
he was asked to join a survey party in the Sinai Desert with inter alia Charles Woolley, another archaeologist at Kalkamish, and an army officer, Stuart Newcomb, who was to be with TEL throughout the war and played a large part in the Arab Revolt. One of the difficulties is that Lawrence is put forward as being the only person who won it, but uh, there were a lot of other people who played significant roles. This survey was ostensibly to visit ancient biblical sites, but this was in fact a front. It was a spying and a map-making and general reconnaissance, given the area's strategic importance. The worry was that the Turks might cross Sinai and threaten the Suez Canal. Lawrence was, of course, busy honing his map reading skills and became a noted cartographer. His knowledge of the terrain, which he was to put to great effect later, was increasing fast and he was beginning to think how one would fight a war in these circumstances. We now move on to the First World War. I need to illustrate the conflicts within British policy at the outset of the war, but I decided I'd better get it started first of all. First section is his phony war, September 1914 to October 1916. He was desperate to get involved. When war broke out, he was busy finishing the Wilderness of Zin report. That was the report on the spying expedition. In October 1914, he joined the map section of the general staff in London. And in December, when Turkey enters the war, he is transferred with Woolley and Newcomb to Cairo to do map making. He goes there in December. In March 1915, age 26, he writes to Hogarth at the Ashmolean, I want to pull them all together and roll up Syria by way of the Hejaz in the name of the sheriff. You know how big is his repute in Syria. Won't the French be mad if we win through? Don't talk of it yet. Now, this is quite a remarkable letter, really, because it shows within a few months of arriving in Egypt, 15 months before the Arab revolt started, Lawrence has found his cause and the agenda which he sought to put into effect. The latter-day crusader was preparing his march. As the year progressed, he got more involved with map-making, doing general intelligence work, interviewing Turkish prisoners. He got a great knowledge of where the Turkish forces were. Later on, he was transferred to the Arab borough. Two younger brothers were killed. He is sick of pens and is seeking action. I think he, particularly after he lost two of his younger brothers, he felt that he really wanted to fight. Now I'm going to come back to the conflicting aims in British Middle Eastern policy in World War I. The Middle East fell under the auspices of the India office. The importance of the Suez Canal was paramount. The Middle East had largely been controlled by the Ottomans since the 15th century. It was a bulwark against Russia. So the Turkish had been quite useful allies to us. At the beginning of the war, it was a little bit debatable whether they would support the Germans or come in on our side. But of course, Turkey was regarded as the sick man of Europe. 
and there were pickings to be had. Germany, late, of course, to the empire gain, Bismarck had only unified the place in about 1870, sought to increase its influence by financing the construction of railways, including the Hejaz Railway. It had pumped money and men into the Turkish army, and in fact had improved the Turkish army. And the Turks, whose finances were not in a great state, were glad of that money. The French, the British, and the Russians were looking for spoils. The mess the area is now is largely due to the irreconcilable nature of imperialistic aims. Oil was firmly on the agenda. America, in the form of what was to become the Standard Oil Company, Britain and Germany were all sniffing around the Middle East looking for black gold. The British fleet had converted to oil power from 1912. I hadn't appreciated that uh, part of the attraction for that was that ships actually sail faster under oil than under coal. There's an excellent book written by an American called Lawrence in Arabia, which talks about the, all the people who were sniffing around Arabia, beginning to look for oil. So there we've got a little bit of general background. Then the second bit I want to talk about is the McMahon letters. Two years from 1914 to 1916, there was an exchange of letters between the Sheriff of Mecca, King Hussein, and Sir Henry McMahon, who was the British High Commissioner in Egypt, about British support for an Arab revolt and independence. This correspondence was at times deliberately vague and opaque on the British part, and that support was opposed by the India office who controlled Egypt. The India office didn't really like the idea of encouraging the Muslims to revolt and seeking independence, given the large number of Muslims under British rule in India. There had been a, a call for jihad against the British and France, and by agreeing to support Hussein, that call was negated. The precise area of the supposed independent state the Arabs were to get was to be left open until the end of the war. Now, notwithstanding this exchange of letters and the firm commitment by the British there was also to be the notorious Sykes-Picot Agreement of May 1916. Despite the McMahon correspondence, this agreement was made between France and Britain with Russian assenting. They wanted to get something out of Turkey, effectively carving up the Middle East after the war. The French had a strange obsession with the Crusades and they wanted Syria and Lebanon. Britain was to receive what was to become Iraq and Transjordan. The British knew that Iraq had oil and they were happy to let France have the Lebanon and Syria. This, in fact, was supposed to be a temporary agreement between two diplomats and was not formally validated by either government. Another mixture in the cocktail of British foreign policy was the whole question of the Jews and the Balfour Declaration of November 1917. Russia had had a series of pogroms starting in the 1880s in what is now Poland. 
and the idea of a Jewish homeland had been muted for years by independent members of the Jewish community. At the time of the Balfour Declaration, there were 60,000 Jews in Palestine and 700,000 Arabs. It was suggested by the Jewish representatives that a strongly pro-British Jewish state would help to protect the Suez Canal. The letter was written by Sir Arthur Balfour to prominent Jews, promising the creation of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Its receipt came as somewhat as a surprise to the Jewish lobby. They really didn't expect they were going to get promised what they were. The book Lawrence in Arabia is quite interesting. There were lots of negotiations and and there was stuff on the record saying, well, what do we agree to give the Jewish people? Oh, just say anything to keep them happy. And that's down there on the record. Now, the Balfour Declaration. His Majesty's government view with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. Another thing we did in 1915 was to sign up an Anglo-Saudi treaty. We'd completed a treaty with Ibn Saad, one of the three rulers in the Arabian Peninsula. So to sum up British foreign policy, we had offered the Arabs an independent state, which would include Jerusalem, agreed with the French how to carve up the Ottoman Empire, promised the Jews a homeland in Palestine. Everybody sought a bit of Jerusalem, including the Russians, as they wanted it for the Russian Orthodox Church. Incidentally, involving the Indians in the First World War without consulting them at all was a great catalyst to the Indian independence movement. They were seriously miffed. I now return to Lawrence's phony war. In Cairo, he used his position, such as it was, to encourage Sir Henry McMahon to support the Arab revolt. This fitted in with his dream. In February 1916, Lawrence is sent to Mesopotamia, modern day Iraq, to try and sort out a problem which I haven't time to talk about. The British and Indian troops had got in a mess and they were surrounded by Turks at a place called Kut. It was decided that it might be possible to bribe the Turks to let the British troops go if they were given a million pounds. So Lawrence was sent off to negotiate this. I think they had to promote him to make him appear to have a little more status than he'd had before. And there is an argument that they sent him because they weren't sure about what was to happen, whether mission was at all safe. And if he got killed, well, it didn't really matter. He was someone fairly low down the tree. The negotiations were totally unsuccessful. Even Lawrence offering them more money was unsuccessful. The British had to surrender and 16,000 British and Indian troops were taken prisoner. 4,000 of these died in captivity. Whilst he was there, he was absolutely appalled at the attitude the Indian army officers had to their troops. We now move on to the second bit of the Arab revolt and Lawrence's part, and that is from June 1916 to the fall of Aqaba. In June 1916, 
the Arabs attacked Medina and the Arab revolt is proclaimed. Things did not go well. The Arabs were really the last people you'd want to have attacking a fortified position. As things were not going well, the British Oriental Secretary decides to go to the Jazz to assess the position himself. Now, Lawrence was due some leave and asked him if he can go along. So they say, all right, he was an Arabic speaker and he was very knowledgeable. Uh, he was punching way above his weight. Stores writes, on the train from Cairo, little Lawrence, my super cerebral companion, the desk job is over. Lawrence's motive was to find amongst Faisal's sons a prophet with the flame of enthusiasm to set the desert on fire. Lawrence meets three of Faisal's four sons, but feels that none of them has the qualities to lead a revolt. Abdullah, who later became quite a good ruler of Transjordan, is met. Lawrence decides he's not the right person at all. At the end, he said, who is this man who knows everything about the disposition of the Turkish troops? Is he God? Having failed with the first three sons to find the leader he sought, he goes off on his own to the camp of Faisal, the second son. And now I would like to read a little bit of this meeting. I felt at first glance that this was the man I had come to Arabia to seek, the leader who would bring the Arab revolt to full glory. Faisal looked very tall and pillar-like, very slender in his long white silk robes and his brown headcloth bound with a brilliant scarlet and gold cord. His eyelids were drooped, and his black beard and colorless face were like a mask against the strange, still watchfulness of his body. His hands were crossed in front of him on his dagger. I greeted him. He made way for me into the room and sat down on his carpet near the door. As my eyes grew accustomed to the shade, they saw that this, the little room held many silent figures looking at me or at Faisal steadily. He remained staring down at his hands, which were twisting slowly about his dagger. At last he inquired softly how I had found the journey. I spoke of the heat and he asked how long from Rabah, commenting that I had ridden fast for the season. And do you like our place in Wadi Safra? Lawrence replies, well, but it is far from Damascus. Lawrence is Lawrence the dreamer, but also a driven, ambitious man, dangling Damascus, the ultimate prize, the potential capital of an Arab independent state in front of Faisal. So after the meeting, Lawrence returns to Cairo, reading the Mordatha on the way. He reports on Faisal, is tall, graceful, vigorous, almost regal in appearance. Age 31, possesses far more personal magnetism and life than his brothers. A popular idol and ambitious, full of dreams and the capacity to realize them with keen personal insight and a very efficient man of business. Lawrence was good at summing up people. He sees that Faisal is not a warrior, 
But what he does have is the ability, based on his background, to sort out dis disputes and unite the tribal leaders. They respect uh, Faisal greatly, and the relationship between Lawrence and Faisal becomes a very close one, which is part of the reason that he felt so dreadful about what happened in the end. When he gets back to Cairo, he reports to the military establishment. And at that time, there was quite a lot of talk of landing an Anglo-French troops at Rabah between Mecca and Medina. Lawrence is bitterly opposed to that. He says that this is totally wrong because it would look as though the French and the British were trying to replace the Ottomans with their own empire. Of course, and this is the whole thing about Lawrence, he had his own agenda. The last thing he wanted to do was to give the French any encouragement, and he didn't want them landing French troops to any extent in the district. He recommends sending a few professionally competent, preferably Arab-speaking officers to help the Arab leaders. Lawrence's aim throughout this war is to keep the French as far away from Damascus as possible, and he wants to get the Arabs as near to Damascus as possible and take Damascus before the French get there. At this stage, he learns that Faisal has specifically asked him to be appointed his liaison officer, replacing someone else. He joins Faisal at the camp to assess the position. The Arabs are struggling. They are terrified by the superior Turkish weapons. And the Turks have aircraft. And Lawrence realizes that he's got to move the Arab army out of the range of the aircraft. At this time, really assessing how it is best to fight the war, the tactics that he's going to employ, which he's been thinking about for some considerable time. And he realizes that the most effective way to use the Arab forces is to utilize their traditional method of fighting, namely raiding. Keep the Turks on garrison duty. Do not destroy Medina. Medina, the end of the railway, was a big port. Don't destroy it. Don't uh, have lots of prisoners on your hand. Keep Medina open. Let it remain open and let the railway remain open, which it had to do to serve Medina and have a lot of people guarding the railway, because if they're all guarding the railway, they're not available to fight elsewhere. He wants to keep the Turks on guard duty, really. We'll probably look in the second part on, on the whole tactics of desert warfare, but the essentials of desert warfare are water, supplies, and mobility in that order. Lawrence realizes that it's gonna be a roar of hit and run, a war of detachment. He realized that the guerrilla fighters, one stage he describes it as being like a vapor, how they can suddenly appear and then suddenly waft away. And I read not so long ago a, a translation of a, an article written by a, an Austrian soldier who had the misfortune to be on three trains which were blown up on the Hejaz railway or ambushed. And he said that Lawrence was everywhere and nowhere. And that was the thing. They never knew what was going to happen and when they were going to strike. Now, Lawrence produces something called the 27 Articles. 
interestingly enough, when the Americans were fighting in Afghanistan, they were given the 27 articles to study. Strive above all to win hearts and minds. Establish an unassailable base. Remain strategically dispersed. Make a virtue of the individuality, irregularity, and unpredictability of guerrillas. Make war on materials rather than men never engaged in sustained conflict. This is a very good summary of how to fight guerrilla warfare and has been accepted as such. He then says, a bit of a summary, our war should be a war of detachment. We were to contain the enemy by the silent threat of a vast unknown desert, not disclosing ourselves till the moment of attack. Many Turks on our front had no chance all the war to fire at us. And correspondingly, we were never on the defensive except accidentally and in error. I'm now going to leap on to the Aqaba raid. And of course, Lawrence had his own agenda to give the Arabs an independent state. And as I had said, he got to keep the French away from Damascus as far as possible and get the Arabs as far north as possible. And he realized that if Aqaba was, was a very good gateway to getting to Syria and leading on to Damascus. And of course, it was very good because it was a port which could be supplied. And one of the things which most people don't appreciate, that the Navy played quite a part in the whole desert Arab revolt by supplying the troops. And indeed, on one occasion, the Turks were making a, quite a serious attack on Yenbo when things weren't going very well for Faisal's army. And the Navy sent some ships in. They put on their lights, looked and fairly menacing, and the Turks decided they'd had enough and backed off. So the, the, the role of the Navy is quite important in the Arab Revolt. On the 9th of May, 1917, Lawrence set off for Aqaba with about 50 men, 20,000 in gold sovereigns provided by Faisal, and weapons provided by Faisal. Now, this was a totally unauthorized exercise by Lawrence. He told nobody. Nobody in the British army knew what was going on. He was completely off limits. Among the 50 was the formidable Auda Abu Tai of the Hawatat, the epitome of the tribal Arab chief. He was needed to rouse the Hawatat further down the route. And the 20,000 sovereigns was, of course, to bribe the Arabs to support and join in the Arab revolt. If Hussein was the statesman, Auda was the warrior. He married 28 times. And when he wasn't busy attending to the needs of his 28 wives, he killed 75 Arabs in battle. He never counted the number of Turks he had killed. It was alleged that T.L. saw him as the crusading baron. The ride to Acre was about 500 miles across rugged terrain. T.L. got ill, and it included a massive feint north towards Damascus so that the Turks did not think that they were going to attack. What they were doing slowly was gathering troops. The main battle was not fought 
actually at Aqaba roaring down to the sea. That was pretty well deserted by the time they arrived. They fought a, a battle inland. It was an incredibly hard journey. T.E.L. got terrible boils and suffered for fever. And the, the toll of going across to desert terrain on a camel was not easy. Now, having captured Aqaba, he realizes that he's got to go to Cairo to tell the authorities what's happened and also to get gold. So he sets across Sinai to the Suez Canal, 160 miles in 49 hours. He has to go because, quite frankly, no one else in Cairo would have believed what had happened. They were astonished. There he meets General Allenby, who is the newly appointed commander-in-chief, nicknamed the Bull. There'd been a chap called Murray before who hadn't been very successful. Two more different characters would be hard to imagine, but their relationship worked well. And I will later on in the second part look at the relationship between them and how they work together. Lawrence gave him a shopping list. He asked for 200,000 gold sovereigns and a list of weapons. And Allenby gave him exactly what he wanted. Referring to the sovereigns, years after the war, people went back to see some of the Bedouins and asked what they remembered of Lawrence. Ah, the man with the gold was a common response. Within two days of Lawrence telling Cairo, the port was being supplied. I want to talk a little bit about the railway war. Even before the raid on Aqaba, other British officers were starting to ambush trains on the railway. The railway was 800 miles long with 79 stations. Surrounded by desert, it was a nightmare to defend. Francis Bacon had written, he who controls the sea is at great liberty and may take as much of the war as he will. Camels in the desert are the equivalent of ships at sea. A hundred men could tie down a thousand troops or as many as 10,000. In the Boer War, we were fighting 40,000 Boers, but needed a numerical superiority of 10 to one to win. It cost us one and a half billion a week to win the war and took years. But this war, the boot was on the other foot. Don't destroy the railway, get the Turks to garrison it. And for example, between July and September 1917, between Marn and Medina, the railway is attacked once every three days. 30 bridges are destroyed and 10,000 rails torn up, but it was left repairable. With this amount of activity, you will appreciate that many others were attacking the railway, not just TEL. Inevitably, the relationship with TEL and Auda the Warrior grew closer. They were relying on the McMahon correspondence. However, Lawrence told Faisal of the Sykes-Picot agreement soon after he heard about it. He was horrified when he learned about this. This explains a part of the torment. He feels he is selling them a lie and writes this to his friends. I suspect that he says to the Arabs, if you get to Damascus first, it'll be hard to displace you. I suspect he over-eggs his ability to make sure that they get their independence and, and the Sykes-Picot agreement be forgotten. In the seven pillars he wrote, and this explains the torment, 
Arabs believed in persons, not in institutions. They saw in me a free agent of the British government and demanded from me an endorsement of our written promises. So I had to join the conspiracy and, for what my word was worth, assured my men of their reward in our two years partnership under fire. They grew accustomed to believing me and to think my government, like myself, well-meaning towards them. In this hope, they performed some fine things. But of course, instead of being proud of what we did together, I was continually and bitterly ashamed. It was not all plain sailing with the attacks on the railway. Lawrence is beginning to show the strain. They try to attack a Porton Bridge at Yarmouk. It goes wrong. and that attack was witnessed by an English friend and, and former member of parliament who says that he's not fighting for the government but for Faisal. Soon after this, the notorious incident de rare occurs, or does it? TL enters the town against advice with a companion to reconnoitre. He is arrested, taken to the local bay who is seeking company for the night. TL resists his advantage and is savagely beaten and raped. He then escapes. He has been tending to be a Circassian who have very pale skins, and because he was worried that he was going to be recognized, but he's eventually allowed to go, they don't stop him going. In the Seven Pillars of Wisdom, he writes as he look up as his assailant, and this is a very powerful passage in the book. I remember smiling idly at him for a delicious warmth probably sexual was swelling through me this is when he's being beaten there was a play on in london not so long ago which i went to see which is based on the premise that the incident at de Rare was never took place that lawrence fabricated it and one of the people who put this forward was uh, george bernard shaw's wife charlotte who was very close almost a mother to lawrence but I think it did happen, and his body and spirit were broken. I think what happened to Lawrence and his breakdown is incomprehensible without de Rare. The citizen of his integrity had been irretrievably broken. A man who hated to be touched and resisted sex had been violated. So we now come on to the last section post de Rare and the final push to Damascus. The gathering strain, I've called this. Um, time constraints prevent me of telling of Allenby's progress and capturing J Jerusalem. TL enters Jerusalem, is much moved by its recapture, despite having lost any religious beliefs he has. Allenby wants TL to keep the Turks at bay near the railway, and Allenby was to advance to Damascus on the Western Front. TL was to protect the East. Lawrence, of course, was, was using armoured vehicles and Rolls-Royce. And by this time, he's got an army who've almost recruited themselves, a private army of about 100. They are thugs. As they advance, the winter conditions are atrocious. He suffers a near mental breakdown when he lost £30,000 needed to pay the northern tribes. He goes to Allenby and says he wants to quit. There is no question of this. And on the 27th of February, 1918, he meets Lowell Thomas, the American journalist. The governor of Jerusalem stores says to Thomas, 
I want you to meet Colonel Lawrence, the uncrowned King of Arabia. Well, that's how Thomas reports it. And yet, interesting, I think this is probably not true because his note made of his time doesn't mention that at all. I think it's just something uh, Lowell Thomas fabricated when he was publicising Lawrence to make money. Lawrence moves on. In September, he's involved in a massacre at Tafas near Dorea. One of his fighters comes to his village, a chap called Tafel, and he sees that the, the Turks have massacred people, raped women, and it's in a terrible state. He is absolutely livid and determined to get revenge. And Lawrence agrees that they should take no prisoners. But later on, Lawrence is seen gathering up Turkish prisoners to protect them. But there's no doubt that he has begun to be badly affected. He was very upset by the fact that when they captured Akaba, they lost two men. And yet here he is authorising bloodthirsty charge and not worrying about taking prisoners or not. The race to Damascus is on, Lawrence wanting to get there before Allenby. On the 1st of October, the Arabs enter the city to massive acclaim. In fact, some Australian troops had got there first. And the Australians had one of the outstanding generals of the, the war, Chapko Chauvel. The Arabs take over running things, and one of Faisal's representatives is appointed the governor. It's chaos. Martial law is declared, electricity down. There are water issues. There are problems with hospitals. Lawrence is told about the three hospitals being in a state, he starts to get things organised. Allenby then enters Damascus. The first night he's there, he hears the Mujahideen making the call to prayer. At the close, he dropped his voice, two tones, almost speaking level, and softly added, and he is very good to us today, O people of Damascus. The clamour hushed as everyone seemed to obey the call to prayer on this their first night of perfect freedom. While my fancy in the overwhelming pause showed me my loneliness and lack of reason in their movement, since only for me of all the hearers was the event sorrowful and the phrases meaningless. He struggles to deal with all the chaos. He hasn't slept for days. On the 3rd of October, there's a meeting at the hotel Tory with Faisal and Allenby. Lawrence has to act as an interpreter. And at this meeting, Faisal was told France was to be the protecting power over Syria. Faisal, representing his father, Hussein, would administer Syria under French guidance. The Arab sphere would include the hinterland of Syria, but not Lebanon. Faisal was furious. Allenby turns to Lawrence but says, did you not tell Faisal that the French were to have the protectorate over Syria? Lawrence said, no, sir, I know nothing about it. The chief then said, but you knew definitely that he, Faisal, was to have nothing to do with the Lebanon. Lawrence said, no, sir, I did not. After some discussion, Allenby told Faisal he would have to obey and accept the situation until the conclusion of the war. Faisal accepted this decision and left with his entourage except Lawrence. Lawrence had been instructed to work with a French liaison officer and he refuses to do this and leaves the room. When Faisal had gone, I made to Allenby the last and I think my first request I ever made leave to go away. For a while he would not have it, but I reasoned him, 
reminding of his year-old promise and pointing out how much easier the new law would be if my spur was absent from the people. In the end, he agreed. And then Lawrence is about to go. On the day before he goes, he has a painting done by James McBay, which it's a painting in oils, and it shows the strain he's felt. Painting is done in one sitting, interrupted continually, as McBay, who is a, an artist with Allenby, the sitting was interrupted continually by the Arabs coming in and saying farewell. On the 4th of October, Lawrence is driven away from Damascus in Rolls-Royce. If anyone has that car hidden in their garage, it's worth a fortune. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.